Voices for Justice is a podcast that uses adult language and discusses sensitive and potentially triggering topics, including violence, abuse, and murder. This podcast may not be appropriate for younger audiences. All parties are innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. Some names have been changed or omitted per their request or for safety purposes. Listener discretion is advised. My name is Sarah Turney, and this is Voices for Justice. Today, I'm discussing the case of Cindy James. On May 25, 1989, 44-year-old Cindy James disappeared from Richmond, British Columbia, in Canada. Immediately, Cindy's friends and family were worried for her safety because for about seven years, she'd suffered almost 100 incidents of harassment from a stalker. These incidents ranged from threatening phone calls and letters to physical attacks that almost killed Cindy. Searches for her began immediately. Then, two weeks later, Cindy's body was found in the yard of an abandoned home about a mile from where she was last seen. She'd been drugged and strangled. After a month of investigating, police concluded that Cindy had completed suicide in an elaborate ruse staged to look like a murder. They further alleged that she faked all the incidents of harassment over the years, but Cindy's family and many experts disagree. This is the case of Cindy James. On the night of May 25, 1989, Cindy James went to the Bank of Montreal at Blundell and No. 2 Road in Richmond. She was seen using their bank machine to deposit her paycheck around 8 p.m. Later that night, Cindy had plans to have dinner with her friends, Tom and Agnes Woodcock, but when they arrived at Cindy's around 9, she wasn't there, and neither was her car. Worried about her safety, they searched the area and eventually found Cindy's powder blue Chevy Citation parked outside her bank. Now, they immediately knew that something was wrong. Cindy usually parked her car right next to the bank, but that night, her car was parked much further away, and how they found the car was even more troubling. The car was locked, and inside were groceries and Cindy's purse. Now, it wasn't just that this was an odd scene for them to find. The Woodcocks knew Cindy had been dealing with a stalker for about the last seven years. The harassment began not long after Cindy and her husband, psychiatrist Roy Makepeace, separated in July 1982. The Vancouver Sun reported that for months, their separation was peaceful, but then in October, strange things started happening, and this caused their relationship to sour. It all started with a mysterious anonymous phone call in October 1982, when Cindy was living in Vancouver proper. After the first call, Cindy kept getting more calls, but each time the caller would do different things. Her mother later told Unsolved Mysteries, quote, She said it was just a voice. Sometimes it would change, the sound, and sometimes it was just whispering. Sometimes it was nothing, just silence. Cindy did tell the police about these calls, and they began to investigate, but the harassment only got worse. At night, Cindy heard unknown people lurking around her home. They broke her porch lights and cut her phone lines. Cindy also started receiving creepy notes created from letters cut out of magazines. She found these at her house, workplace, and on her car. And like I said, this went on for years. From October 1982 until May 1989, when Cindy went missing, she was the victim of more than 90 instances of harassment from this stalker. To keep track of everything, she created careful notes of each incident. Now, I won't go into detail about each and every incident, or else this episode would be incredibly long. But I do want to highlight some of the most disturbing things Cindy James had to endure during this period of time. According to the Vancouver Sun, on at least four occasions, Cindy's stalker strung up dead cats in her backyard, and pinned to the cats were threatening notes saying not to call the police. Once, the stalker sent Cindy the organs of a small animal. The police investigated, but weren't able to identify the sender. Then, on January 27, 1983, about three months after the harassment began, it escalated to physical violence. That night, at around 9.30 p.m., Cindy's friend Agnes Woodcock went to Cindy's house to visit. When she got there, she found Cindy slouched over the basement stairwell. Her arms and legs had been cut, and there was a black nylon stocking knotted tightly around her neck. 
Thankfully, Cindy was still alive. The Canadian press reported that when police arrived, she told them that she'd been attacked from behind while she was in the garage. But this time, there was a breakthrough. Cindy said that she'd seen one of the men before. She explained that in September of 1982, a man came into her backyard carrying a lot of money, asking for someone named Jimbo. When she said she didn't know Jimbo, he asked if she wanted to have sex. Cindy says that this guy who asked for Jimbo was the man who attacked her. Again, police investigated, but never found the men responsible. The phone calls, letters, and other harassment continued. As the months went on and the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, or RCMP, couldn't catch the stalker, Cindy felt like they weren't really taking her seriously. So she hired private investigator Ozzy Caban in November 1983. He took her concern seriously and gave her a handheld panic button, pepper spray, and a two-way radio. He also installed alarms and bright exterior lights at her home. But despite Ozzy's help, the attacks didn't stop. Both the police and Ozzy kept looking into this, but they couldn't find any proof of who the stalker might be. On January 30th, 1984, there was another attack. That evening, around 6 p.m., Ozzy heard strange noises on the two-way radio he'd previously given Cindy. He drove over to make sure she was okay. Once Ozzy entered the house, he found Cindy in the hallway. She was lying on the floor unconscious. A black pair of nylon stockings were wrapped around her neck, and there was a paring knife pinning her left hand and a note to the ground. The note was written in cutout letters and read, Now you must die. Cindy was rushed to the hospital, where staff cut the pantyhose off her neck. According to the Vancouver Sun's report, Cindy told police that when she got home from work, she saw a man walking through the gate near her house. At first, she thought it might just be a neighbor, but then he attacked her from behind, hitting her on the back of the head with an object. After that, she remembered two other people in the kitchen and feeling a prick on her arm, like someone had injected her with a needle. After this, the threatening phone calls and other harassing behavior continued. Police tried to trace the calls, but they were too short. Only once were they able to successfully trace a call. In that case, police discovered that the call was coming from Cindy's own home. Police also ran 24-hour surveillance on Cindy's house for a while, but there was never any sign of the stalker. On July 23, 1984, Cindy experienced another attack while she was walking her dog at a park in Vancouver. A couple in a van approached her and asked for directions. All Cindy could remember about what happened next was that someone grabbed her neck tightly and pulled her into the van. There were also three other people inside who held her down, while one of them pricked her with a needle. They also put a black stocking around her neck. Cindy managed to escape and seek help from a nearby house. Again, the RCMP couldn't find those responsible for the attack. The stalking continued, and on August 21st, 1985, Cindy's home was set on fire in the middle of the night. The police investigation found that the fire started in six different places in the basement bathroom. The culprit had used toilet paper as the ignition source. Investigators believe that the fire was intentionally set by someone who had access to the inside of the house. But again, the culprit was not captured. This episode of Voices for Justice is brought to you by June's Journey. I'm pretty sure everyone here loves a good mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey. You get to step into the role of June Parker and search for hidden clues to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder. You engage your observation skills to quickly uncover key pieces of information that lead to chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. So what does that mean? Well, June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game. Essentially, you find hidden clues and uncover this mystery. But it's also more than that. You can customize your own luxurious estate island, you can join a detective club, and put your skills to the test in a detective league. I like that you can play totally alone, or if you want to play with other people, you can do that too. I find myself playing June's Journey in little breaks during the day, or most frequently at night before I go to bed. Whether you're craving a good mystery or just looking for an escape, I really do recommend June's Journey. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. 
on December 11, 1985, Cindy went missing after leaving work for her lunch break. Later, her car was found a few blocks away from her job. The keys were under her car. At around 6.20 p.m. that day, Cindy was found by a cyclist who watched her stumble and fall into a ditch. Her body was extremely cold, and she showed signs of hypothermia. She had on a man's work boot and glove, and again, there was a black nylon stocking wrapped tightly around her neck. Cindy had several injuries, scratches on her upper chest, a cut on her forehead, cuts on her fingertips, and scrapes on her arms, legs, and back. And again, there was also a puncture wound on the inside of her elbow, possibly from an injection. The Vancouver Sun reported that Cindy seemed withdrawn and couldn't remember what happened to her. She was drowsy and her speech was slurred. She was taken to the hospital. The doctor who treated Cindy considered that she might have attempted suicide, overdosed on drugs, or was a victim of assault or head injury. She denied taking an overdose of drugs or alcohol, but blood tests revealed benzodiazepines in Cindy's system. When asked about this, she mentioned taking a few Ativan pills earlier that day. While at the hospital, Cindy mentioned the possibility of being sexually assaulted. Doctors found two red, round, ulcerated spots in her genital area and bruising on her thighs, but they determined this was not enough to confirm a forced sexual assault. After Cindy was released from the hospital, there were more incidents. In 1986, Cindy and Roy's divorce was final. She changed her name, painted her car, and moved to the suburb of Richmond, but the stalking continued. Cindy's sister, Melanie Hack, later wrote in a blog post, quote, She never knew when something horrible would happen, so she was mostly tense and fearful and nervous, constantly looking over her shoulder and trying not to be alone. She'd have flashbacks and nightmares that left her exhausted. In April 1986, a fire broke out at Cindy's new home. Earlier that day, Cindy had been feeling scared, so she asked her friends, Tom and Agnes Woodcock, to come stay with her. In the middle of the night, Cindy heard a noise downstairs. She ran to where her friends were sleeping and told them about this. Tom said he heard it too, and they all went downstairs where they discovered a raging fire. They tried to call for help, but the phone was dead. So Tom ran to a neighbor's house to call. When he went outside, he saw a man standing on the curb. When the man noticed him, he ran away. Now, of course, after the police got there, Cindy told them about everything that was happening. She also told them she thought her ex-husband Roy was responsible for the fire, but the police didn't think that was the case. They believe Cindy had likely started the fire herself. And not being believed was really taking its toll on Cindy. Her sister Melanie later wrote in a blog post that after the fire, Cindy was so distressed that she had a nervous breakdown and stopped eating. She became suicidal and had to be admitted to a psychiatric hospital. She said this left her feeling degraded and humiliated. One of the therapists that saw Cindy at the hospital, Dr. Connolly, later told Unsolved Mysteries, quote, I think one of the things she found most difficult was that people didn't believe her. She was always doubted. She knew she was doubted, and that was what slowly drove her crazy. The fact that she wasn't believed. Because of this, Cindy became distrustful of police and the people around her. Melanie Hack later wrote in a blog post, quote, She lived with an undercurrent of anger. But despite all the harassment, she tried to see herself as a survivor, not a victim, trying so hard to be self-sufficient and independent. To the end, she was also a compassionate and devoted sister and friend, showing interest in my life, asking how I was doing and always offering an ear. Before 1986 was over, Cindy started seeing a new psychiatrist, Dr. Friesen. She saw him twice a month up until her disappearance. He ended up treating her for depression and prescribed her anti-anxiety and depression medication. In 1987 and 1988, the harassment continued. On October 26, 1988, Cindy was physically attacked again. Late at night, she pressed her panic button, prompting police to rush to her aid. They found her in her car, holding the panic button in her right hand, slumped over the front seat with her legs sticking out of the door. 
Her pants and white nylon stockings were pulled down, and she had some cuts on her body. According to a report by the Vancouver Sun, Cindy's wrist and neck were bound with black nylon stockings, and duct tape covered her nose. The stockings were so tight that the responding officer couldn't initially feel her pulse, and they believed she was dead until she wheezed. At the hospital, Cindy's blood was tested, and they found traces of benzodiazepines again. A sexual assault examination was conducted, but the results were inconclusive. But it's extremely important to note that two pubic hairs were found that didn't match Cindy's. And once again, once she recovered, Cindy told the police what happened. She said that when she arrived home around 8.30, someone held a knife to her neck, threatening her to not make any noise or else they'd harm her. She also saw another person, possibly wearing a ski mask. She remembered feeling someone hold her arm while another person injected something into her right arm. Again, the attackers weren't found and the harassment continued. Months later, on April 8, 1989, the security guard at the hospital Cindy worked for found a note on Cindy's car. The note read, Soon, Cindy. Like usual, the letters were cut out from magazines. On May 20th, Cindy sent a letter to her sister Melanie, in which she gave an update on the stalker situation. She wrote in part, quote, I'm still being harassed from time to time by someone trying to break in here, but I think we've come up with a solution if it doesn't cost too much. Gord, who is the husband of one of Cindy's friends, is going to wire in a sensor for me, so hopefully we'll know when someone enters the backyard, and we can quietly call the police when he's busy doing his thing. I'm really hopeful we may actually catch him soon. Wouldn't that be wonderful? I could actually start living a normal life again. I've almost forgotten what that feels like. The police have been pretty useless, so it would be wonderful to hand him over on a silver platter, so to speak. But then, five days later, on the afternoon of May 25th, Cindy told a friend, quote, Some people may think I'm paranoid, but I have a feeling I've been followed all week. And just hours later, Cindy disappeared. After finding Cindy's car abandoned at the bank, her friends, the Woodcocks, reported her missing. Officers went to the bank and looked at Cindy's car. They noticed blood on the driver's door and found her bank card and a deposit slip lying under the car. It looked like Cindy had been abducted. Police immediately checked with Cindy's ex-husband, Roy Makepeace, to see if they could rule out his involvement. And they did. He'd apparently been with a friend from the afternoon until 11.30 p.m., but before the police left, Roy mentioned some voicemail messages he'd received back in October 1988. He said he'd given the recordings to his attorney, but not the police, because he didn't trust them. The first message was from October 11th, 1988. The caller said in a slow, hissing whisper, Cindy, dead meat soon. According to the Vancouver Sun, at first, Roy thought the caller said, Sunday, dead meat soon. He figured the message was a threat referring to a break-in attempt at his own house the previous Sunday. When he realized the message said Cindy, he connected it with the stalker. The second message was from October 12th, and if you don't like bad language, just skip ahead 30 seconds. The caller said, quote, Hey man, more smack, more downers. Another grand after we waste the cunt. No more deal. Police believe smack meant heroin, and downers meant barbiturates. But again, police were unable to find the person who left the messages. The day after Cindy went missing, the investigation was in full swing. Police went door-to-door -door in the area around the bank, looking for witnesses. When they couldn't find any leads, they expanded the search. They brought in a helicopter to take pictures from the air, and they worked with a Canadian Coast Guard hovercraft to search the shoreline. Meanwhile, other officers searched around Richmond. No one could confirm seeing Cindy on the day she disappeared or after. But then a lead did come in, or what they hoped was a lead. A few days after Cindy went missing, police received a call from a life insurance agent who said a man who claimed to be Cindy's father called his office to ask about Cindy's policy but the company told the caller that they couldn't give out the info over the phone, and Cindy's father did deny making this call. 
As far as I and my team could find, they never tracked down the source of this call. On May 30th, five days after Sydney went missing, the Richmond police went to the public for help. But then a week later on June 6th, police told the media that there was nothing to suggest foul play or that Cindy had actually been abducted. But then just the next day on June 7th, a municipal employee found Cindy's body outside an abandoned house. This was about a mile away from the bank where she was last seen. She was fully dressed in a pink top, brown slacks, and shoes. Her hands were tied behind her back with black nylon stockings, and her ankles were also bound. The Vancouver Sun reported that her face had been so brutally beaten, it was virtually impossible to recognize her. Of course, an autopsy was conducted, but the medical examiners couldn't determine the exact cause of her death. The toxicology report revealed that Cindy had a lethal dose of drugs in her system. There were 1.5 ounces of morphine, which is 10 times the lethal limit, and around 20 to 80 sleeping pills in Cindy's system. Using this testing, the medical examiner ruled Cindy's cause of death as an overdose of morphine. According to a blog post written by Cindy's sister Melanie, quote, it was never determined how the morphine got in her system. She added that no syringes or drugs were found near Cindy's body or in her car. After Cindy's body was found, her father Otto told the Vancouver Sun, quote, she said last time if she was attacked again, she wouldn't live. One family member who wished to remain anonymous told the Sun that she was frustrated with the way the police handled the case. She said, quote, Cindy hired a private investigator because she didn't believe the police were doing enough to protect her. The police didn't take her seriously at all. One of the officers told my relative that the general consensus at the police station was that she pulled an elaborate disappearance. They thought she was doing all these harassments, beatings, and notes on the car. Cindy was so ashamed of the whole thing. When she went in to report things to police, they looked at her as if she was some kind of nut. On June 11th, just four days after Cindy was found, the province reported that, quote, officially the police say they are investigating a homicide, but privately, officers say her death was suicide. Multiple officers told the publication that they thought all the attacks Cindy had endured throughout the years were not real, and that in the end, she had staged an elaborate suicide. One officer said, quote, It's all too convenient. Here's a woman who has complained for years. She's never had another witness. She's never clearly been able to describe the suspect. It's hard to believe that she was never able to offer a good description. The officers discussed multiple attacks against Cindy and why they believe the attacks had been staged by her. The officer said that in general, the attacks only happened when Cindy's house was not being surveilled by police. Their thinking was that this happened because Cindy knew when they would be there, so she never hurt herself during that time. Which, I think it's fair to argue that any stalker would also wait until the police weren't surveilling Cindy's home. And if they were watching her that close, they probably had a good idea of when she was alone. The officers brought up the attack from January 1984, the one where Cindy's hand had been pinned to the ground with a knife. They said that it was suspicious that the knife somehow missed all the tendons, bones, and major arteries in her hand. They argued that it was possible Cindy had stabbed herself because a nurse would have known where the least harmful place to stab would be. They also brought up that the way Cindy had been tied up in previous attacks was identical to the way she'd been tied up in death. They argued that it was possible that she'd been the one to bind herself all along. But the worker who found Cindy's body told the province that he didn't think there was a way Cindy could have beaten herself to the point of being unrecognizable. And again, the police countered this by saying that maybe what the worker thought were injuries from an assault was actually Cindy's head decomposing. Cindy's family denied the suicide theory. Her brother told the province, quote, why would somebody inflict wounds on herself for so many years and then go into a bush and tie herself up and commit suicide? Cindy's friends and family also said that if she were to complete suicide, she wouldn't have done it in such a violent way or a manner that would have been so humiliating. 
Cindy's private investigator further told the Vancouver Sun that Cindy was stressed by the stalking, but she never gave up. To him, it didn't make sense for her to complete suicide. Several of Cindy's friends and family revealed to the media that she'd known who her attacker was. Her father told Unsolved Mysteries, quote, She was very, very reluctant to talk about this right to the end, and our feeling was that she was withholding something extremely vital. Cindy's loved ones further argued that she likely didn't tell the police that she knew who the attacker was because she was frustrated with them, and she knew that there probably wasn't enough evidence for an arrest. Ozzy told Unsolved Mysteries, quote, She wouldn't tell the police the entire story. She would be evasive. She would withhold information. And she simply would not act as a normal victim would act. And I can see where a police officer would have a tremendous amount of problems believing her story. For about the next four weeks, police continued investigating Cindy's death. Then, on July 12th, they officially announced that they did not suspect foul play. Instead, they believe she planned an elaborate suicide, where she ingested the drugs, tied herself up, then laid down in the same location where her body was later found. This conclusion baffled Cindy's loved ones. Her father Otto told the Vancouver Sun that he was not happy with this decision. He said, quote, Their explanation didn't satisfy me at all. There's a murderer out there somewhere. Cindy's PI Ozzy was also shocked and he pushed back against the RCMP statements that there was never an outside witness to Cindy's harassment. He said, quote, I'm a little confused because if they don't suspect foul play, what do they think? These incidents have been witnessed by family and outside friends. After police announced their determination, the coroner service ordered an inquest to determine Cindy's manner of death, and to decide if the police needed to reopen their investigation. And like we've seen before, this really becomes a battle of the experts. The inquest started on February 26, 1990. The police department argued that Cindy had been making up the attacks and that she completed suicide. They said they spent approximately $1.5 million investigating and protecting Cindy, but they never found any evidence to figure out who the stalker was. The lawyer representing Cindy's family argued that she did not complete suicide. Instead, she was murdered after enduring more than 90 instances of harassment over nearly seven years. The lawyer claimed that the police had not done enough to protect her. Now, there were four main parts to this inquest. The first part involved examining 16 of the most severe incidents Cindy endured. The police focused on two of the physical attacks Cindy had gone through, the first one being in January 1983. This is where she was found slouched over the basement stairwell with the black nylon stocking around her neck. Cindy told the police that she'd been attacked from behind when she was in the garage. Officers searched the garage and the house for any signs of a struggle, but they said they didn't find any evidence. However, they did discover blood stains on the bathroom counter. When questioned about the stains, Cindy didn't give a clear answer. The officers believed this incident might have been a failed suicide attempt. In order to get more information, Cindy took two polygraph exams, and she didn't pass either of them. According to police, after this, Cindy changed her account of what happened. She said that she was actually attacked inside the house, not in the garage as she had previously said. She said that she was then taken to the garage where another man was waiting, and he threatened and harmed her. When authorities requested another polygraph based on her news story, Cindy refused to take it. Now, Cindy's private investigator, Ozzy, told the Vancouver Sun that he had a conversation with her about this. He asked her to be honest, pointing out that she had failed the lie detector test. Cindy admitted that she didn't tell the truth to police, because the attackers had warned her not to say anything, or else they would harm her sisters, mother, and herself. Ozzy encouraged her to take another polygraph test and tell the truth, but Cindy still refused. During the inquest, the police also discussed the last physical attack that Cindy had experienced before she went missing. This happened in October 1988, when Cindy was found in her car with nylon stockings wrapped around her neck, ankles, and wrists. The officers mentioned that during their investigation, they discovered that most of the lights were on in Cindy's house, the doors were locked, and there were no signs of forced entry. 
Furthermore, a neighbor was outside around the time of the attack, but claimed he didn't hear or see anything suspicious. Because of all of this, police believe Cindy had tied herself up. But Cindy's family's lawyer brought up some important points to counter police testimony. They mentioned that at the scene, four cigarette butts of a brand Cindy didn't smoke were found. Also, an expert on knots testified that it was highly unlikely Cindy tied the bindings on her ankles and wrists by herself. Police also testified about the two house fires, the first being August 21, 1985, when the fire broke out in the basement bathroom. An officer said that he determined the fire was intentionally set by someone who had access to the inside of the house. But again, they argued that they didn't find any evidence that someone had broken into the home. The bathroom window was open, but there were no signs that anyone had entered through it because there were undisturbed cobwebs, dust, and soot on the windowsill. They also argued that the window was very difficult to get through. An officer tried, but struggled and ended up leaving footprints on the toilet tank and seat. Also, there were several alarms in the house and on the basement door, which would have made it hard for someone to enter undetected. So again, based on all this, they believe that no one else was in the house besides Cindy, and she was the one who started the fire. And again, Cindy's family's attorney argued for the other side. He said there was evidence someone broke in through the window. There were pry marks, and two screws were missing that had never been found. Police went on to argue that the April 1986 fire was started by Cindy too. A fire inspector testified that a flammable liquid was found on a bookshelf, and he believed the fire was started by either Cindy or the Woodcocks who were staying with her. A firefighter also testified, saying that Cindy had told him she'd been in bed just before the fire broke out. However, the province reported that when he checked her bedroom, it didn't look like her bed had been slept in that night. And again, they bring up all the security measures in the home, saying that no alarms were set off. An investigating officer stated that Cindy told her she thought Roy was responsible for the fire, but he was in South Africa at that time and was ruled out. This officer says that she believes Cindy started the fire, and even considered charging her with arson. But then another officer testified and disagreed, saying that he did not believe Cindy set the fire. The Woodcocks also denied any involvement, and Cindy's family's lawyer pointed out that no accelerant was found during the search of her house. It's a lot of back and forth, but stay with me. The second part of the inquest examined Cindy's married life to Dr. Roy Makepeace. The Vancouver Sun reported that it was revealed that he had been violent towards Cindy during their marriage. Cindy told police that Roy owned two guns and had hurt her on three occasions, once even breaking her ribs. She also said Roy would talk about killing people with crossbows and threatened to kill her. One detective wrote in his report, quote, Roy Makepeace has a short temper and shows anger spontaneously. A former co-worker of Cindy's testified that in the fall of 1981, Roy pushed her down the stairs, causing a leg and foot injury. The co-worker said that she'd also seen Cindy come into work with a black eye. Roy was with her, and she heard him tell Cindy, quote, I'm sorry I did that to you. It was further revealed that after the July 1984 attack, when Cindy was in the hospital, someone called asking about the hospital wing's security where Cindy was admitted. The employee who answered the call later heard a recording of Roy's voice and thought it sounded similar to the caller. According to the province, one detective who had been on the case from the beginning testified that he initially believed Roy was responsible for the stalking attacks. But after investigating and interviewing Roy, he ruled him out. The inquest also discussed the two messages left on Roy's answering machine. Several police officers believed the voice on the tape was Cindy's, but her family disagreed. Roy testified at the inquest also to share his side of the story. He admitted to slapping Cindy, but he strongly denied ever beating her. Roy insisted that he never made any threats of harm to Cindy or discussed killing anyone. He also said that he had no part in the 90-plus incidents leading up to Cindy's death. Now, part three of the inquest focused on Cindy's medical history. 
the jury heard about a January 1985 hypnosis session, where Cindy claimed Roy had killed two people during a boat trip in the summer of 1981. The Ottawa citizen reported that while under hypnosis, Cindy said that at some point during the trip, she decided to go near the shore where the boat was. Cindy came upon a log cabin and knocked on the door. After getting no answer, she went inside and found Roy holding a bloody knife. There were two dead people, a man and a woman, and blood was all over the cabin. Cindy ran away in horror, yelling that Roy was a murderer. Cindy claimed that Roy ran after her and slapped her. The next thing she remembered was Roy cutting up the bodies with an axe, putting them in plastic bags, and throwing them over the side of the boat. Police said that they investigated this, but found no evidence of any crimes or human remains. It also came out that several months after the hypnosis session, in late June 1985, Cindy attempted suicide by taking a lethal dose of sleeping pills. She was involuntarily committed to a psychiatric unit for five days, until she was withdrawn against doctor's wishes by an older brother. After she was out, the police asked Cindy to call Roy and confront him over the murder allegation she'd made during the hypnosis session. During the call, Cindy accused Roy of being behind the threats and attacks, and also of killing the two people in the cabin. Roy was shocked and denied any involvement, saying he hadn't spoken to her in 18 months. He tried to convince Cindy that she was mistaken and that she was seeking revenge. Cindy responded, quote, Roy, that isn't going to work anymore. I'm not insane. We both know that you have been doing it. Roy threatened to sue her if she made those statements publicly. Following the call, the police put Cindy, Roy, and two other unnamed people under surveillance. But they stopped after five days, saying that it was draining resources and yielding no new information. We also learned that in October 1985, the police hired psychiatrist Dr. Tony Marcus to review Cindy's case. The Vancouver Sun reported that after reading the police reports and interviewing Cindy twice, Dr. Marcus diagnosed her as having borderline personality, which he defined as a, quote, person on the edge between reality and psychosis. He described Cindy as a hostile dependent, someone who harmed herself and tried to make it appear that someone else was at fault. He said that despite this, her terror and suffering were very real to her. Dr. Marcus also told the police that Cindy could be treated through hypnosis or truth serum. But first, she'd have to admit to herself the theater she created. He said, quote, I couldn't get very far with her. She never let you get that close to know the truth. During the inquest, the jury was also told that in 1986, Cindy started seeing a new psychiatrist, Dr. Friesen. Up until her death three years later, Cindy saw him twice a month. Dr. Friesen testified that he did not believe Cindy had thoughts of ending her own life in the last two years before her passing. In fact, he noted that her mood in the months leading up to her death was the best that he'd ever observed. Dr. Friesen told the jury that he diagnosed Cindy with a condition called dissociative disorder, where she had difficulty connecting with reality. He believed that she felt compelled to seek attention by making up stories. During his testimony, Dr. Friesen explained that if Cindy was indeed responsible for the reported attacks, she would experience the events as if they were genuinely occurring. This would result in her feeling little or no pain during the incidents, and having little or no memory of them later on. He emphasized that it wasn't a matter of Cindy lying about the events, but rather her genuinely believing that they were happening. Additionally, Dr. Friesen mentioned that Cindy sometimes took high doses of a sleeping pill that caused retrograde amnesia as a side effect. And enter another psychiatrist, Dr. Connolly, who treated Cindy while she was in the hospital. He believed there was a possibility that Cindy had multiple personalities. The fourth and final part of the inquest examined Cindy's death and the subsequent investigation. Dr. Sheila Carlyle, who conducted Cindy's autopsy, testified that the scene around Cindy's body was filled with inconsistencies, which she detailed for the jury. Dr. Carlyle suggested that there were signs that suggested foul play. A trickle of blood was discovered on Cindy's car, and her shirt had scissor-like cuts, 
However, there were no physical injuries on Cindy that matched these cut marks. Her nails were manicured, her face was nicely made up, and her clothes were neatly arranged. Regarding the stockings found around Cindy's neck, hands, and feet, Dr. Carlisle explained that they were too loose to cause major harm. The nylon around her neck was carefully looped under her hair and then looped twice over it. And while there was a mark on Cindy's neck that resembled a puncture, no needles or drugs were found nearby. She also expressed her opinion that there were too many inconsistencies to determine what exactly happened to Cindy. But she also believed there was a strong possibility that the scene had been staged. According to police officers' testimonies, they had several reasons to rule out homicide in Cindy's case. When they found her body, her coat was spread carefully on the ground, and there were no signs of a struggle. The nylon stockings used to tie her neck, wrists, and feet were too loose, causing no bruising. Additionally, Cindy's bank card was discovered under her car in a way that police didn't believe could have happened by accident. Inside her locked car, the officers found Cindy's purse, two sets of keys, and two bags of groceries from Safeway. The police took these groceries to the Safeway store near where her car was found, but the total didn't match any sales from the day she went missing. Police thought the missing sales receipt was important possibly because it could have revealed the purchase of black nylon stockings used in the incident. To gather more information, the police consulted Dr. Friesen, who said Cindy was not suicidal at the time of her disappearance, though she had shown suicidal thoughts in the past. Based on all these findings, the police concluded that Cindy likely took the drugs on her own, then tied the nylon stockings on her body before collapsing in the area where she was found. And we have another not-expert. According to the Canadian press, a knot-tying expert testified that Cindy could have bound herself prior to death. He explained that there was a complex arrangement around her wrists and ankles. Each limb was tied with a slip loop to form a box arrangement. To demonstrate how Cindy could have bound herself, the expert used a black stocking the same length as the one found on Cindy. He then recreated the same knots and loops, tying himself up in front of the jury. The whole process took about three minutes. The expert pointed out that the stocking around her wrists and ankles were loosely tied, allowing them to be slipped off easily. However, the ligature around her neck was tight enough to make him feel lightheaded, but it didn't completely cut off his breathing. Now, back to Cindy's family's lawyer. They argued that she couldn't have taken the drugs found in her system because she didn't have access to them at her workplace. They also pointed out that there was no record of any drugs missing from there. The lawyer also argued that if Cindy's body had been near the abandoned house for weeks, someone would have noticed. The lawyer told the jury that a construction worker lived in a van close to where Cindy's body was discovered. He actually cooked his meals less than 20 feet from where she was found, and they say they didn't notice anything strange or unusual. Even the people who partied at the abandoned house claim they didn't see anything suspicious. A dean of pharmaceutical science told the jury that it would have been very hard for Cindy to inject herself with a large amount of morphine found in her body. They believed that it was more likely that someone else had injected the drug into her or she had taken it by mouth. Cindy's PI, Ozzy, testified that he believes Cindy had been murdered somewhere else, and her body had been left outside the abandoned house hours before it was found. He told the jury that he saw Cindy's body in the morgue on the day after she was found. He said her body smelled, and she had blotchy patches and molting on her left side, which indicated she was lying on her left side when she died, but at the scene, Cindy had been found lying on her right side. He also testified that he was surprised nobody had come across or noticed Cindy's body before it was found. He thought it was unusual that if Cindy had been there for two weeks, animals hadn't reached her body. To test his theory, he put out a piece of pork. And right away, birds and rodents attacked the pork. On May 30th, 1990, the inquest into Cindy's death finally ended. After 40 days of hearing evidence, the jury concluded that Cindy's manner of death was undetermined, not suicide. Some jurors told the province that they had a difficult time reaching a decision. Most of the jurors believed that there wasn't enough solid evidence to prove Cindy had completed suicide. The majority also decided that there was no reason for the police to reopen Cindy's case. One juror told the province, quote, We wrestled with it from day one. 
There were all shades of grays, no black and white. In the end, you felt like you knew Cindy. Your heart just ached for the girl. Now, because of the jury's decision, Cindy's case was reopened. But according to Cindy's PI, Ozzy, and another detective named Wally Christensen, police didn't really further look into Cindy's death. In 1992, Ozzy and Wally spoke to the Vancouver Sun about how they both believed Cindy had been murdered. Wally said that he'd been able to figure out where Cindy bought her groceries on the day she disappeared. It wasn't at the Safeway like police had thought. She actually purchased food at Woodward's, which used Safeway grocery bags. Wally was able to track down her receipt and found that she did not buy black stockings. He further pointed out that no black stockings were found in her home, office, or car either. Ozzy further said that there were some things that the police had gotten wrong at the inquest. For example, the jacket found under Cindy's body was not hers. It was actually a men's blue denim jacket. Ozzy also said that while police said the jacket was neatly folded, he believes it was rumpled, as though it had been dropped. Following the 1992 Vancouver Sun article featuring Ozzy and Wally, reporting on Cindy's case became very infrequent. As the years passed, Cindy's sister Melanie Hack kept speaking out. In 2013, she told McLean's magazine, quote, I realized not all the facts had been presented at the inquest, and some that were presented were incorrect or incomplete. I spent years going over all the police and medical files plus Cindy's writings looking for missed information. Throughout her journey, Melanie has come to believe that Cindy did not complete suicide. She also believes she knows who stalked and killed Cindy, but she didn't name any names, saying it would just be speculation. Melanie has expressed doubt about the case ever being officially solved. She questions whether the police were genuinely interested in resolving it. And I think she brings up a great point, she suggested that potential evidence gathered in the case, like the DNA from cigarette butts left at the scene, saliva on envelopes, and foreign hairs found on Cindy's body could be used for analysis. But at this point, she's not sure if authorities even still have the evidence. She said, quote, They were told to keep the case slash file open because of the undetermined findings at the inquest, but I found out police closed the file and labeled it as suicide. So, is there any evidence left for analysis? Finally, when asked what she'd like to say to the world about Cindy, Melanie said, quote, We need to be able to recognize Cindy's case for what it was. Beyond a distraught individual genuinely fearing for her life, she felt trapped, alone, confused, alienated, angry, guilty, and ashamed. It doesn't matter what clinical label was put on Cindy. She was a victim a victim of society's ignorance, and unable to know where to turn to for help, or who to trust, or what to do. Society failed Cindy through a lack of proper support over a span of years. Which brings me right to our call to action. Please share Cindy's case. I also highly encourage you to visit Cindy's sister Melanie's website, melaniehack.com. Here, you can read her blog, parts of her book, and find more media about Cindy's case to share. As a reminder, 44-year-old Cindy James went missing on May 25, 1989, after visiting a bank at Blundell and Number 2 Road in Richmond. On June 7th, her body was discovered lying near an abandoned house on Road 3 in Blundell, around a mile away from the bank. Anyone with information about Cindy James is urged to contact the RCMP tip line at 1-800-222-8477. But as always, thank you, I love you, and I'll talk to you next time. Voices for Justice is hosted and produced by me, Sarah Turney, and is a Voices for Justice media original. This episode contains writing and research assistance by Haley Gray, with additional research assistance by Anna Loria. If you love what we do here, please take a moment to follow, rate, and review the show in your podcast player. It helps us and helps more people find these cases in need of justice.
Welcome to the Secret After Show. The dogs are in. Um, they actually are here this time. And let's jump into Cindy's case. This is a case I have been thinking about for years. I think it's a case that I was familiar with even before I started making true crime content. And I think, you know, it's it's just one of those cases that is very popular and, in my opinion, quite sensationalized. And I wasn't really here to play the game of do we believe her or not. I think if you're here on this podcast, we know that we believe victims. And the bottom line is, they still haven't proved this one way or the other. Cindy's family still wants answers. Who did this? Who was the man on the corner that Tom Woodcock saw run away? And if the RCMP still has this evidence, will it ever be tested? Those are my questions. And that would solve it all. I mean, testing those items would be a great way to put this case to rest and provide her family with answers. Now, if you didn't notice, my voice is a little hoarse, and I tried to wait to record this until the very last minute, um, but this does have to do with my trip for Alyssa, which I promised I would tell you guys about. So, first of all, let me just tell you that a big reason I don't post where I am at the time I am there is because of my dad. Let's just cut right to the chase. Um, if you guys haven't seen, he has been aggressively attacking me on social media. I mean, saying like really horrendous things and saying things that I think he thinks will make people not like me or think I'm a liar. He posted a comment on a YouTube video that was like, Sarah was a goody two-shoes who always uh, nar or ratted Alyssa out. And it's like, yeah, I've, I've already told my entire audience that. It's part of the reason um, I have guilt about Alyssa because, um, as you guys know, I've said this a thousand times, I was 100% wrapped around my dad's finger. And I think that's a big reason why Alyssa didn't confide in me about so much. She knew that I would go right to our dad and tell on him. Um, you know, but he's also saying things like, my mom would be so disappointed. He's also making a bunch of stuff up, which is no surprise. He's, uh, he said that he was offered a plea deal of probation, which isn't true. Um, I actually went back to the prosecutor and confirmed that because I was like, hold the phone. Um, cause, you know, a little insight into the trial. I haven't talked about this yet. I begged for a plea deal. They came to me and said, um, would you be willing to accept a plea deal or would you be willing to entertain it? Not that it's up to me, but they do run it by families first and get their opinion. And I said, I would love a plea deal. Um, I would love anything to not have to go through this hell for the amount of time I imagine this would take, which ultimately was about three years, right? So I said to them, um, I would be willing to accept anything if he just confessed said that he did it and told us where she was. And they came back to me and said, um, we talked to the lawyers. They say that he will never take a plea deal, so we're not going to offer him one. But now he says that he was offered one and didn't take it because he knew he was innocent. Um, so yeah, that, that torment has been really hard. And I did hear about it while I was on vacation as much as I tried to avoid it, it was everywhere and I had a bunch of people telling me. Um, so unfortunately, that's just really where he is now. He um, has said multiple times that he basically, you know, he started a YouTube channel. He wants to start a podcast. He wants to advocate for people like him, he says, um, which... I don't want to go into all here because this is where I ramble and I'd rather get all my thoughts together, but needless to say, I am very concerned for the effects this can have on the true crime community, um, especially the wrongful conviction community. Him running around trying to say that he was, you know, wrongfully accused and wrongfully arrested can be so harmful to people who are actually wrongfully accused and wrongfully arrested. And I'm just going to leave it at that and get on to the nicer part, which was my trip. So um, <laughs> if you guys are familiar with me and this podcast, it probably comes as no surprise that um, as a part of one of the ways I want to honor Alyssa, um, I went to Disneyland, <laughs> um, which sounds so silly to say, but Disneyland is where 
Alyssa and I had our best memories. Getting outside of that house was where we had our best memories. Riding the rides with Alyssa, her making me be brave, that infamous uh, picture where Tigger's in the picture. If you guys don't know, Tigger was Alyssa's favorite. And there's this picture of me and her that I love so much. I had a recently gotten my braces, and so I did not want to smile in photos ever. I was like, absolutely not. Braces are the worst thing ever. And um, she ended up tickling me right before the photo. And it's just a really sweet, special moment that, um, I don't know, I love her for forever and uh, really reminds me of Alyssa when I go to Disneyland. So without getting too sappy, I went to Disneyland and tried to have the best blowout trip ever. And if you guys saw on my Instagram, I know a lot of you were surprised by this. I don't actually share a ton of my personal life that much, but I did share for National Daughters Day my two bonus kids um, with Watchman. So it was me, Watchman, and our two daughters going to Disneyland, and it was absolutely fantastic. Um, I think part of the, oh, I'm going to cry, I think part of the healing was also taking them. I mean, a huge part of the healing, and of course, I, you know, we weren't really talking about it. Um, we didn't say this was a trip for Alyssa. We just said, we're going to Disneyland. We're going to have the best trip ever. And a huge part of the healing for me, oh, don't cry, um, was seeing them have fun, seeing two sisters have the best time ever. And uh, I just really hope that was a fantastic experience for everyone. I think it was. Their feedback was fantastic. We had a great time and I was able to honor Alyssa. And as a really uh, short side story, they uh, had a display for Coco and you could write notes to your loved ones that had passed. And every time we went to this display, they were out of paper. And um, it was really upsetting. It's like all I wanted to do was write, write this message to Alyssa on this paper or whatever. Um, and Watchman ended up going to a staff member and explain the situation, you know, in private again. We're not we're not doing this stuff in front of the kids. It's not their burden to bear. Um, and they actually, a cast member came up to me and they were like, listen, we're bringing out the papers tomorrow. What exactly do you want written on this note? And they promised to put one up for Alyssa. So shout out to the Disney cast members for being absolutely amazing um, and making the trip more magical and just better. It was really, really sweet, um, but that's where I was. I was at Disneyland. I'm sure I will post some more photos and pictures, probably not of the kids, um, but yeah, uh, that's why I was away, and thank you for allowing me this time away, and let's get on to our segment of hope. So this is from CNN.com. It was published on September 24th, 2023, and the headline reads, Missing toddler found sleeping in woods using her dog as a pillow after walking three miles barefoot. Uh, the article goes on to read that a two-year-old girl who walked barefoot more than three miles with her family's two dogs was found sleeping off a wooded Michigan trail using the smaller dog as a pillow, authorities said. Troopers were called to a house in rural Fatehorn, Michigan around 8 p.m. on Wednesday after the toddler... I, I'm not going to say her name, had wandered away from home, wandered away from the home. Michigan State Police Lieutenant Mark, you guys are always getting me with the pronunciation. I'm always getting, I don't know why I'm saying you. I'm always getting myself with the pronunciation. Uh, Michigan State Police Lieutenant Mark Giaz, Giannuzio, Gian, Giannuzio told CNN on Friday, um, the girl's mother said she had an instinct to check on her daughter who had been playing in the yard and learned that the toddler's uncle told her to go outside, go inside because she had no shoes on. She began to yell. They searched for 20 minutes and then they called the police. Now, they deployed drones, teams, more dogs, um, and a bunch of people from the community who went in the area near their home that was heavily wooded. And around midnight, four hours after police were first notified, a family friend searching for the girl on an all-terrain vehicle came across the Chase's family Rottweiler, Buddy, who started barking as he approached, according to Chase. The That's popcorn scratching the wall. More dogs. All the dogs. The two-year-old was discovered a short way off the trail, sleeping on the ground with her head atop Hartley, the family's English Springer. When the ATV driver tried to get close to the toddler to wake her up, the smaller dog growled. The mom... Oh, I'm gonna cry. 
The dog says, or the dog, the mother said that uh, she has those dogs wrapped around her finger. Um, so yeah, this is our story of hope. Obviously, because um, she was found, it, it seems unharmed uh, with her dogs. Uh, I saw a different article that basically implies that like the toddler started walking away and the dogs just knew to follow her. So um, this is our segment of hope. Shout out to those dogs. Dogs are magical. Dogs are life. Um, get a dog. If you don't have a dog and you have the ability to care for a dog responsibly and the room and all that, uh, get a dog. They are amazing. I can't uh, speak highly of them enough and you never know how they might just help you out in a sticky situation. So that is our segment of hope for the third or fourth time saying that now. Thank you. I love you. And I'll talk to you next time.